Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. This is Nighthawk Calling. And anyone who still doesn't get that reference, you're still dead to us. And just just go on YouTube. It's not difficult um, and it is legendary. Alina, who do we have today? So today I would like to introduce to all of you Emma Butcher, who is a writer, historian, broadcaster, who's specialising in the history of children and war. But today we'll be speaking with her about her new book, the Brontes and War. It looks at the Bronte family and how their writing was influenced by war. So welcome. Hi, nice to meet you. Um, <laughs> weird like, kind of virtual meeting. But yeah, absolutely. <laughs> how is lockdown? So tell us about uh, you and Pudge are uh, uh, locked down together, aren't you? Yeah, we are. So Pudge is my hamster. Um, so we're having a great time just chilling. He's kind of running around in his ball. I'm cooking things that otherwise I would never learn to cook. Have you done, you've been doing selfies time. with Pudge, haven't you? I have done some selfies with Pudge. I mean, <laughs> I don't really have a lot else to do, to be honest. Most people are in lockdown. It's like, oh, with my dogs or with my cats. And I'm like, well, I've got a hamster who is, I mean, he's not great company during the day. He kind of just sleeps during the day. But at night, I mean, we have a wild time. Yeah, party time. <laughs> we've actually, Emma, we've already planned our, <laughs> we've already planned our history hack Christmas party on Twitter yesterday. So we're so desperate for something to look forward to. People seem to be doing this. They're already discussing what's the first thing you're going to do when you get out, when you're allowed out. I mean, I think most people are going to go to the pub, right? Because this Hell is yes. where I'm definitely going to go. <laughs> Basically, I feel like it would be a heroic action going injecting all my money into pubs. So yeah. I think that's exactly what I'm going to do. I think they're going to be mobbed. Oh, it's going to be great. There's this absolutely wicked pub near me called the Palm Tree, which is this old kind of East End London boozer that does a jazz night on a Friday and a Saturday. And I'm going to be going down there, drinking all the Stella and having a dance. Is probably what I'm well. <laughs> Get on the wife beater. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to fly in for this. This sounds quite exciting. Poland oh, sounded quite it. boring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's get on to some history. Alina, kick us off. So, obviously, many people know that Emily wrote Wuthering Heights. Mm -hmm. Charlotte wrote Jane Eyre. Anne, the tenant of Wildstone Hall. But some of our listeners might not be quite familiar with the rest of the family. 
Can you tell us a bit more about them? Yeah, sure. Um, so there were four surviving Bronte siblings. Um, two, the two elder siblings, um, Mariah and Elizabeth, actually died when they were very young. Um, but the four surviving siblings were Charlotte, Emily, Branwell and Anne. And like you say, we kind of know the sisters for their later works. But Branwell was the brother. And even though he didn't go on to publish any kind of... Um, He published some poetry, but not any great works. Um, He was instrumental, along with the other three, in creating a fantasy kingdom when they were children. So right before um, any of the well-known works were published, all four siblings collaborated on this big fantasy saga, which um, they worked on for about 10 years, between 1829 and 1839. And in it, it's this amazing, wonderful world filled with war and violence and sex and exotic shores. It's amazing. So their interest in war, I've heard from a friend who is massively in love with the Brontes. How does it start? There's a story about some toy soldiers, isn't there? (laughs) It all begins with a box of toy soldiers that their dad, Patrick, brought back to the parsonage because the kids were a bit, they were very kind of self-isolated. I mean, it's strange to say that during these times, but they were very much this cliquey unit. So he brought them back some toys to play with and each of them picked up one of these toy soldiers that he bought them and said, this will be mine. And it's from this kind of soldier this kind of soldier beginning that this universe was created and that's where their interest in toy soldiers really began now in terms of a traditional interest in warfare and the events of the day patrick the father is perhaps the most traditional but his children develop in a really different way expressing their interest tell us more about their imaginary world Okay, so basically once they'd picked up and named these toy soldiers, so Charlotte named hers Wellington, which was after um, the Duke of Wellington, who was the hero of Waterloo and the celebrated Englishman of the present day. Branwell named his Boney after Napoleon Bonaparte, who was the French adversary, so Wellington's rival at the Battle of Waterloo. And um, he was seen as this great evil dictator who was looking to take over Europe, but failed. So you've got these two adversaries, these two enemies, um, these two um, rivals. And then Emily named hers Gravy um, because he was a grave little man. And Anne named I was going to say, is it because he was a northerner? Because that would have been fine. <laughs> and also, yeah, <laughs> gravy, if you also put it. Yeah. Um, and um, Anne's was a guy called Waiting Boy, so a bit boring. Um, but basically, um, so from these kind of four people, four kingdoms based on these people were invented. And these four kingdoms, they were Wellington's land, Boney's land, Sneaky's land, um, and Ross's land. And basically... It started with these kind of four kingdoms, which were based on the west coast of Africa. So you can imagine these kind of strange Yorkshire kingdoms mixed in with this exotic African landscape. And from there, they basically, all these white men effectively colonised this west coast and built metropolises and cities and country estates and mills and powerhouses and basically this entire imaginary kingdom. And this is where they started to set all their stories and build up their range of characters and events. So it's very complex. I kind of call it a modern day game. of It's basically a modern day Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings. It's that complicated. 
Um, so I think there's a really interesting point to be had about um, the influence of uh colonialism at the time on these as well but we're going to stick with the military um so perhaps when it comes to how these stories went into their future work perhaps like with Jane Austen you can see more obviously the influence of war can't you because there's just lots of soldiers and military characters in her books um but in the Bronte's juvenilia um particularly the Angrian stories um you can see the Napoleonic Wars but it isn't just those is it there's a strong connection with earlier the French Revolution and also there's a lot of shades of republicanism in there as well that's drifted across the channel that they've picked up yeah, absolutely. So the main influence was the Napoleonic Wars. And, um, you know, that that really does kind of thread all the way through their narratives. But you're totally right. Um, so Alexander Percy, who's one of the main characters, who's it's it's very complicated because the characters evolve over time. So Branwell's original toy soldier, Bonaparte, eventually evolves into this character called Alexander Percy, who's a revolutionary and a Republican. And he constantly stages uprisings, which are based on the revolutionary model. So Branwell's very interested in that. But there's also kind of um, references to early republicanism under um, Cromwell. And there's references to Milton in there as well. There's references all the way back to ancient warfare. You know, there's a lot of pugilism, which was very much... um, uh popular during the Georgian period but there's lots of um kind of ancient references there's references to the Iliad and the Odyssey in these works there's you know a range of kind of different types of warfare running all the way back through history up till even you know not just the Napoleonic Wars but beyond that to the Anglo-Ashanti Wars and that's where the colonial elements of things really mix in with war because you have the white colonizers at war with the Ashanti tribes which are inhabiting their imaginary world but also were very much real tribes in Africa during the time and there were lots of periodicals talking about the Anglo-Ashanti wars so it's really interesting um, that the siblings were in they were really interested in all types of war you know not just big wars but smaller conflicts Um, there's references to the um, American Revolutionary Wars in there but also just civil conflicts as well so the local conflicts um, in England um, for the Luddites and the Chartists which were rumblings after the Napoleonic Wars so this whole spectrum really so it's really interesting you know to think that they were interested and and engaged with just so much war material You've mentioned the Duke of Wellington already, and as you said, he's a colossal figure at this time um, in in their recent memory um, with Napoleon and especially his rivalry with Napoleon. Um, so I think you've already sort of said yes, but is he the embodiment of a man to look up to? Because Charlotte is a bit obsessed, isn't she? And can we trace people like Wellington in in the later characters yeah. they come to create, particularly Rochester in Jane Eyre? Absolutely. So um, their father, Patrick, was also hero-worshipped Wellington. He was a um, staunch Tory like Wellington. He was um, he campaigned for Catholic emancipation, which also was one of Wellington's policies. So incredibly, um, he was hero-worshipped by them. And Charlotte adopted her father's hero-worship, kind of a fatherly influence. Um, so Wellington and... What's interesting, though, is that um, Wellington's seen as this very kind of steadfast father-like figure in the early saga. And then gradually he mutates as 
Bonaparte mutated into Alexander Percy, Wellington eventually mutated into a character called Zamorna, who is um, Charlotte's kind of teenage bad boy icon in the saga. You know, he's this very sexy, Byronic, dominating character who's got a little bit of kind of evil about him as well. And that really comes as well from not just from kind of pulling away from this kind of father-like figure, but still being interested in authority and bringing in some of the evil characteristics that maybe attracted the British public to Napoleon as kind of this um kind of how we're always kind of interested in kind of the baddies from history. You know, there was this big sensation around Napoleon as well and his Byronicness and and um kind of evil demeanour. But what I think is really interesting is this kind of combination of the two and how they do influence very much the masculinities of the later works. So you have characters in um, Charlotte's fiction like Mr. Rochester, who is very much this authoritative, Byronic figure. Even in Emily's um, Wuthering Heights, Heathcliff, again, is this quite kind of bad, but seen as this quite sexy, sexy um dominating character so you can definitely see the elements of military authority filtering through the later works i'm quite interested in a bit more about bramwell um so could you tell us a bit more well about his hero or what we call him an anti-hero alexander percy and how did he evolve Initial toy soldier is Bonaparte, who then transforms into Alexander Percy. And in the early Glastown sagas, um, there's a series of tales called Letters from an Englishman, where effectively Branwell's character just incites revolution repeatedly, throwing both his and Charlotte's kingdom into chaos over and over again. And this basically carries on throughout the entirety of their um, of their saga. And it's basically Branwell wanting to annoy his sister most of the time because he just takes his character and he just completely destroys anything that she's built a lot of the time. Um, things start to get a little bit more complicated in Alexander Percy's and Zamorna's relationship. So Alexander Percy, the Bonaparte, Duke of Zamorna, the Duke of Wellington figure. They have a really, really complex relationship throughout the entire saga. And basically, so Alexander Percy has a daughter called Mary, who Zamorna marries, and they both use her as a pawn in their political and war games as well. So you can see that the war between them isn't just necessarily about kingdom, it also infiltrates the domestic zone as well, which I think is really interesting. But Branwell, basically, I think it's mainly his aim just to annoy his sister for about 10 years using this character. (laughs) So we've talked about, I love it. There's just so, uh, we've talked, we've talked about the, um, like the major players like Wellington and Napoleon influencing them. Um, this question's actually come in, um, from online and, uh, Inga wants to know, the Brontes also lived in a country where there are many ex-soldiers who have suffered the psychological and physical impact of war. Are they exposed and conscious of these impacts and how do they relate to their understanding of martial glory and masculinity? It's really interesting, actually, the way um, 
the siblings write about war because you're totally right there is and what we've spoken about so far has been very much the kind of celebrities of warfare and there is very much this military performativity and this patriotism and these sensationalist kind of war narratives but there's also this really interesting undercurrent throughout their entire saga of exactly that, the physical and traumatic effects of war. Now, when I first started researching this project, I wanted to know if the Brontes knew any soldiers in Haworth. And even though I found evidence of soldiers in the graveyard, on the baptism registers, etc., etc., there is literally no letter that exists between the Brontes and the Bronte children and soldiers. You know, there's no physical evidence that they ever interacted with any soldiers, although you can assume with the father being the curate of um, Howarth that he may have come into, he would have come into contact with them. But what is very clear is that um, around the um, surrounding area of Yorkshire, a lot of mill owners, or sorry, a lot of mill workers um, were ex-soldiers. So a lot of the kind of Luddite rebellions and Chartist rebellions were led by ex-militia men. So you can see that the landscape that they surrounded him definitely did have that kind of military air. Um in terms of their actual writings and how they write um, soldiers, so I, although they didn't talk to any soldiers or that I can prove, they also were very interested in the military memoir. Now, this was a new genre of fiction that um, was created pre, during and after the Napoleonic Wars, where for the first time, during this kind of um, late 18th, early 19th century, the soldier started to be treated as an individual human being. So rather than seeing the military en masse, people became concerned with the man behind the uniform. And in order to earn some money, soldiers used to publish their experiences of war. And even though some of those experiences were travel narratives or kind of sentimentalised dialogue, some of them contained real elements of trauma. And although the term war trauma didn't actually exist during that time, it was open to all of these labels such as cannonball wind and nostalgia. You can read these kind of memoirs and see what soldiers are feeling and how they're reacting to war. And in the Bronte saga, so they were reading these memoirs and they read them through the periodicals that um, came into the parsonage. So they were published in things like Blackburn's Edinburgh magazine and the United Service Journal, which their father subscribed to. They then took that, processed that and reimagined that in their writings. And they created these soldier characters. There's um, one called John Flower, for example, one called Henry Hastings, who were these ordinary foot soldiers who were in the regiments underneath um, the Duke of Wellington figure, so Zamorna. And these were, these soldiers would keep diaries of, um, their events and their battles and also the physical and mental effects, um, of these battles. So you get this evidence that the Brontes understood the signs of trauma. So melancholia and, um, nightmares and feeling distant. And there's this absolutely, um, wonderful poem that Zamorna um that Zamorna writes which is well written by Charlotte Bronte but under her pseudonym Zamorna um do you think I could read it 
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, let's. Yeah? Yeah? Okay, so... um. So Zamorna, so this is her, her chief character, but um, basically I think this is a really good example of how they understand trauma. So he's just come back from battle and he's trying to go to sleep, but he can't. And he writes, he could not sleep. His temples pressed to the hard pillow throbbed with pain. The belt around his noble breast, his heart's wild pulse could scarce restrain. And stretched in feverish unrest, awake the great commander lay. The sods of battle round him welter in noble blood that morning shed and gorged with prey and now declining from all the fire of glory won. Watchful and fierce, he lies repining over what may never be undone. So it's this kind of recognition of the, the kind of effects of war, him kind of repeating the effects of war over and over in his mind in this kind of mental prison. And you have other characters as well, like I said, you know, exhibiting signs of melancholia. And a lot of them are taking um, drugs and drinking alcohol in order to cope in the kind of final tales of the Angrian saga when um, a lot of the wars have been over. So it's really interesting thinking that the Brontes, from a position where they were born after the Napoleonic Wars and they were just reading accounts of soldiers, they actually ended up understanding the the more mental effects that war had upon the kind of returning population. That's a, a just fascinating. I'd never considered that. Um, Inga actually, she part of her degree, I think, was the Brontes, which is why she was coming at you. It was such an involved question, and she was really excited that you were coming on. Hey, I was really excited to answer it. So. Yeah. <laughs> Um, there's arguably some influence from other artists and their responses um, and then their responses to war as well that have, have filtered down into the Brontes. I'm thinking particularly of Byron. Um, how did he inform the Brontes writing and also uh, Walter Scott? So Walter Scott's really interesting um, because he was the popular novelist of the time. I mean, everyone hates him now. It seems no one, no one decides <laughs> in this period of isolation. Oh, you know what? I'll pick up some Walter Scott. Yeah. So, but <laughs> in the Victoria, in the um, uh, 19th century, um, he was this popular novelist of the day, and the children actually read a lot of his works very early on, um, including so by the age of ten, they'd read his entire eight-volumed Life of Napoleon, which wow. I tried to read a little bit. <laughs> not even penetrate the first paragraph so good on them <laughs> um, 
So they had, um, but Walter Scott was doing this really interesting um, narrative technique at the time called fog of war, um, as it's been coined after. But basically, um, in line with this um, idea of um, the British public reading war or reading kind of military memoirs, Walter Scott was writing war so that the British public who never experienced war could be in the centre of the action. So this sense of the battle raging around, you could be sitting in your armchair at home and have the battle raging around you and you've got bullets flying past you and you've got, you're in the fog of war, you're in the midst of everything. And this technique was quite new. Um, It wasn't this formal stiff account of war. It was this very exciting, sensationalist idea. And this is what the Brontes really picked up from Scott. And in their juvenilia, especially Branwell, he's writing these kind of very complex stream of consciousness war narratives, like he's right involved and in the centre of the action. So that's what I think is really interesting, that he's picking up kind of artistic um, kind of narratives um, from these writers. Byron's really interesting because um, not only does um, he have mixed views on Napoleon, which Branwell imitates within his own verse, um, so they were both interested in Napoleon's fall from grace. Byron also was a big um, critic of war. So he wrote um verse directed at the Duke of Wellington after Waterloo, saying, what have you gained by this? What have you gained by Waterloo? And this is something that the Brontes took on board. And they realised that um war was not just this one-dimensional sensationalist, um, sensationalist, exciting narrative. There were these moments of awareness of the cost of war, which I think that sometimes that um, primarily they got from writers such as Byron. And in their saga, they would, in the middle of battle narratives, um, they would pause and sometimes um, quote um, Byron um, in this moment of kind of reflection, um, you know, this moment of awareness in their narrative. So, for example, in one civil war battle, you know, the battle's raging and everything's kind of going off left, right and centre. And suddenly Grandma pauses and he just writes from Don Juan. Here pause we for the present as even then that awful pause dividing life from death. And this is directly lifted from Byron's verse. So he just uses Byron um, to kind of penetrate his own writings and create these kind of brief moments of awareness of the real cost of war, which I think is really interesting. So they're adopting all of these kind of writers' own viewpoints and styles and bringing it into their own work in this kind of crazy mosaic. I just, uh, you you liked Inga's last question. To me, they sound like terrifying exam questions, but you seem to love the last one, so I'm going to hit you with this one. With these sagas that they created... To what extent are they fan fiction of their day? It's a hundred percent fan fiction. That's exactly what it is. Um, you know, I was I was talking to I recently helped write an article about where the Brontes Juvenilia, the first kind of Dungeons and Dragons, because this is kind of what they are. It's a mixture of role playing and fan fiction. Um so I think that a lot of the juvenilia gets dismissed because um, a lot of scholars think that it's just, um, you know, three geniuses, well, four in my opinion, including Branwell, kind of testing the waters and trying things out. And it's all a bit of a mishmash and it doesn't reveal their kind of true genius like their later works. But, you know, instead, this is a really important um 
work, which basically is not only, um, it doesn't only reveal their early genius into their later works, but it also collects all of the opinions, all of the artistic narratives, all of the um, kind of publications of the present day, which they're lifting things from and then creating a collage. So it's kind of all this second-hand information, which, yeah, it's imitative, and sometimes you don't know what they've written or whether they've plagiarised it. But that's important in itself, right? That That's exactly kind of what fan fiction is, is, is taking something and adding to the story. And this is exactly what they're doing. They're Writing down, which is great for historians because you can see what's important to the everyday person and what how children are reacting to war and all of this stuff. And then they're creating something wonderful out of it. You know, it's great fan fiction. I mean, I don't know what Wellington and Napoleon would think of it if they read it. A little bit racist, you know. They're they're also their relationship is very much this homosocial, very kind of strange, imagined thing. But it's it's I think it's really really interesting seeing how they imagine all of this stuff and it's very much role-playing fan fiction that's exactly what it is (laughs) you've definitely sold it to me alina i know that something emma said earlier on has sparked a question with you hasn't it yeah it's uh it's more of a, a social question really um Basically, you mentioned earlier about the self-isolation that the Brontes actually lived in. I want to know how severe it actually was. Has it been over and exaggerated? Because they're obviously incredibly well educated. And we know they were exposed to periodicals and other things that meant that they're not culturally cut off from the outside world, even if, even if they were actually physically. So I think what I think there's been a lot of myths that have built up over the Brontes over the years. And one of the big myths is that they were kind of physically isolated in this parsonage on the moors, um, which just isn't true because Howarth was actually this very bustling industrial town with a lot going on in it. There was a lot of artists that lived there, um, you know, in across music and and art and you know generally they were very exposed to a lot of culture um they regularly went to concerts in nearby towns like Keithley and Bradford so they were very much in this kind of cultural um this cultural hub with their father being the curate they would have had interactions with the villagers etc etc the main thing about the Brontes, though, is that apart from Charlotte, who had um, two friends, her best friend was Ellen Nussie, the, bro- the siblings kind of kept themselves to themselves. That's the main thing, even though that they weren't necessarily cut off physically, they weren't lonely on the moors. They decided they were very much this kind of clique and they spoke to one another and they acted out these plays to one another but they didn't act them out to the outside world at all. They were very much in their own little imaginative bubble, if that makes sense. So even though they were um, exposed and they had access to a lot of culture, they were kind of self-isolated in a way, in the sense that maybe they didn't, you know, trust people outside of their initial kind of group in the sense that this was something very special and very personal to them. You know, even their um, father couldn't read their stories because they wrote them on these um, really tiny, um, probably about five centimetre books, 
which were all done in um, quill and ink, but all in very small hand, which only they could kind of read and discuss. Isn't there so a very- throwdown as well between uh, Charlotte and Emily over Charlotte reading Emily's poetry and how long it took her to convince her to even publish it? Yeah, absolutely. Like even in the Juvenilia. So it started off with all four of them collaborating together. And then in 1832, uh, Charlotte and Branwell break off to become their own two. And Emily and Anne break off and they become just two writing pairs. Um, I think maybe because Charlotte was too bossy. I think she was quite <laughs> bossy all her life. But, you know, this this sense of, you know, Emily was very, you know, you can see that that kind of um, animosity between them existed even, yeah, when um, Charlotte wanted to publish Emily's poetry and read her work. So that that was there even in the early writings as well, that sense that they kept up to date with each other. But Emily and Anne certainly felt kind of sidelined in the early writing kind of stages. Like all of the early Glastown works are all written by Charlotte and Branwell. And even though Emily and Anne are characters and evidently have some input, they're not the leaders whatsoever. I so think if they had come up with um, better names for their characters than Gravy and, and the other one, um, <laughs> they may have been taken more Gravy. seriously by their siblings. Potentially. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I actually think, so Emily was, you know, Emily and Anne's world of Gondol is, ah, uh, it is incredible. So we've got loads of the angrier stories left. So you can read lots of Charlotte and Branwell's writings. There's there's mounds and mounds. But mm. Gondol, which is what Emily and Anne broke off to write in 1832, um, none of the prose survives of it. There's only poetry. And probably about 150 poems of that survive. But what we do know is that it was this incredible kind of craggy, rocky Yorkshire landscape with prisons and and high and kind of you know moors and mountains and it was basically ruled by this feminist amazonian warrior queen called augusta geraldine almeida who used to um basically start wars with a lot of men and get men to fall in love with her then break their hearts and they'd either commit suicide or be thrown in a dungeon so that's pretty much what Emily and Anne were up to after they <laughs> left Langria. <laughs> it must be heartbreaking for you as a researcher that the prose doesn't, surpri- uh, doesn't survive. Well, the rumours were that, I mean, back to that Charlotte and Emily um, um, kind of animosity. Um, so the rumour was that Charlotte actually got rid of it all that she burned it or got rid of all of the kind of prose elements. Like there's rumours that Emily was working, Emily was definitely working on a second book by the time that she died. And there's no manuscript of that either, that Charlotte got rid of that as well. I mean, some, some people say that Emily was buried with it, but, you know, the likelihood is that Charlotte got rid of it because she was very interested in preserving her sister's image. Mm after her death so i think that a lot of things were destroyed by her i mean who knows stories keep turning up over the years of angrier like recently um there was a book that turned up that had been in a shipwreck and had turned up in some kind of auction house and it contained a juvenilia story in it you know stuff and that was in 20 i think it was 2017 so stuff keeps getting discovered all the time so who knows, the gondol prose could be out there somewhere. 
<laughs> Fingers crossed. Uh, now that we're in self-isolation, I say we set up the three of us a WhatsApp group and start our own mad little world. Um, I can already think of one general <laughs> dictator to uh, oversee it. So we'll start that after and see how far we get before we actually get let out of the uh, house. And it will give you someone other than Pudge to talk to um, during the day. But <laughs> Emma, thank you I, so much I for need- joining us. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on. No, thank you for telling us all about the Brontes and how um, war influenced their writing. I, I think you're right. I don't think you can divorce the, the childhood stuff from their later quality of their later work because it all seems to intertwine together, doesn't it? It does, certainly, yeah. Uh, it's just a great world. I love sharing it with, with everyone. So. <laughs> and you have shared uh, this subject with everyone, haven't you? Tell, tell everyone about your book. Um, so yes, so my book has just been published. It came out in January. It's called The Brontes and War, Fantasy and Conflict in Charlotte and Bramwell Bronte's Youthful Writings. And it's published by Palgrave and available online everywhere now. Excellent. Thank you very much, Emma, for joining us. Thanks very much. Thank you. Join us tomorrow when we will be learning all about the history of Afghanistan from the 1960s up till about 1999-2000. This is with uh, Kamal Haider, who is a preeminent journalist in the region and a senior correspondent for Al Jazeera English. And he also happens to be my uncle as well. It's an absolutely fascinating interview. Uh, don't forget, you can now become a patron of History Hack for as little as $1 a month by going to www.historyhack.podbean.com. Uh, it's all muchly appreciated and will help keep us going in the aftermath of the corona crisis. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 